I mean, just think of God's kindness to us in, in uh, condescending to us in this way, saying, hey, if you, if you want to see my love for you, if you want to be assured of it, um, if you want to see where my spirit is working in the midst of my people, let me, let me, let me give you some, some tangible things that you can cling to, that you can hold on to. And, and by faith, we receive that, that spirit's working in our lives through these, through these sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And- Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Real quick, before we begin this episode, listen to the end for updates on our Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant efforts and our upcoming Bible study on the Book of Judges. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And as a reminder, we are on our Season 3 Promises and Fulfillments, and we're going through the Covenant Theology book, published by Crossway, written by Reformed Theological Seminary faculty. This episode, which is reflecting on chapter 27, it's episode 27 as well, it's Covenant Assurance and the Sacraments. And it's written by Dr. Derek W.H. Thomas. And we are going to have a special guest, Adriel Sanchez. And we're going to be talking about this chapter here in a moment. But before we jump in, as a reminder, as always, the same links as usual. There is a link to Crossway. So they are the publisher of this book. And you can click that link and get a copy of this actual covenant theology book that we're going through. And it serves as a companion to our podcast and our podcasters as a companion to this book, as Dr. Ligon Duncan has mentioned before. And there's some other links. There's one to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. You can find other like-minded podcasts out there that are reformed in doctrine. And if you like our content, you'll probably like theirs as well. And then last but not least, a local church finder. Uh, This is to find a local reformed church near you. It's a helpful guide. You can type in your zip code, where you live, and it'll show you the closest reformed church to your home. And that is the most important thing that our podcast drives you to a church. And so without further ado, let's jump into this Promises and Fulfillments episode. But first have Peter further introduce Adriel Sanchez. Yeah, we were we were kind of joking, but kind of serious before. We uh, our first choice was was Pastor Adriel, and our backup was was Derek Thomas. I'm, I'm glad we got our first choice. Yeah, we'll right. have to work yeah. on we'll have to work on Derek Thomas maybe later on. So he'll kind of wait in the wait in the background. But he's Pastor Adriel is the pastor of North Park Presbyterian Church, was a PCA, <clears throat> and also in addition to his pastoral responsibility, he also serves the broader church as a host of the core Christianity radio program, probably a podcast a little bit smaller than ours. 
Um, no, it's, it's yeah. much, much, much bigger than ours. Is. <laughs> yeah, <it's much> bigger. <laughs> so we're, we're super thankful for you coming on, uh, Ajo. Thanks for, thanks for talking about this chapter with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. So you said chapter 27. I thought we were doing 26. Maybe I'm just joking. No. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to. Uh... If you can only see the video, Nick's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I was like, did I read the wrong one? Yeah, you the funny thing like... is, I think, <clears throat> I think originally Nick was like, oh, we're doing chapter 22 with him, right? And I was like, oh, no, we're doing chapter 27 with him. So this, oh, this would have like almost been accurate. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, you guys sent me a couple, you know, to potentially look at, and I like this one. There was another one I like. Maybe that was chapter twenty-two, but I'm glad we're doing this one. So. Yeah. Heck yeah. And, and, and a small secret. Uh, I'm spilling the beans here. Sometimes we record out of order, so the That's audience right. doesn't know this by the time we publish them because we we release them based we're on. We're so order. good at editing. It's it's just seamless. Right? You just can't tell. So sometimes, like with this we're recording it before some of the previous episodes come out so it did throw me i was like wanting to make sure i had the right <laughs> chapter before i read it and all that's that. right you should just you should just flown with that you should just talked about 26 and just super confused oh, us yeah oh, yeah that no, would have been no thank you i would i would not have known <laughs> what i was talking i haven't looked at chapter 26 <laughs> right. so. well that's two of us yeah so um i love i mean what do you think of this chapter uh yeah Pastor overall Sanchez? thoughts and feelings this is just a great practical. I really love this chapter. So yeah, go ahead and start us off. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought it was okay. Uh, I'm just joking. I, <laughs> I like it. I like the chapter. Um, well, initially, when you guys were, you know, threw out some chapters for me, I this was the one I was the most interested in, just because I, I feel like it's sort of in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, both as a pastor, so thinking about the sacraments, thinking about our relationship to. Uh, the sacraments, assurance of salvation uh, on, on core Christianity. That's probably the, the biggest question that we get from people who are calling us with questions about the Bible is they want to know, uh, how can I be sure that I'm saved, that I really am a Christian? So we get, we get a variation of that question almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people, I think when they think about it, would, wouldn't think of the, and, I, and I'm saying, when I say most people, I mean, at least our audience, which is, which is fairly broad, wouldn't think of uh, the sacraments is something that they could go to in terms mm-hmm. of of growing in their assurance, in their understanding yeah. of God's love for them, and resting in that. So, um, I just was was attracted to the chapter just by the title. Um, and as far as the chapter is concerned, I, I really appreciated a lot of what uh, Thomas had to say, and uh, excited to get into it. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so. We can kind of consider this like a, what, a 45 minute long question on assurance a little bit. So it's like you're it's like we're calling in. You got a 45 minute long answer. By the time this this episode is done, you are going to be so confident in your salvation. It's like, you know, it's just we're going to we're going to have that nailed down. So I love it. Hopefully, Yeah. Like, yeah, <clears throat> that's, that's great. So important. so important. Yeah. And what I like about it is. We've been going through, I don't know, Peter, how long we've been doing chapter season three, but uh, it's yeah, since like it's June feel- or July. Yeah. And we've been going through first week, describe all the biblical covenants. And then we went through uh, the hist- history of what's going on in the church um, after, you know, the, the early church fathers and all that stuff and what's going on, like, um philosophically historically and then now we're kind of getting it all this this is the last actual chapter of of this book and then it's pulling it all together and showing how we 
are active participants in the covenants, how we can actually play a part in all the stuff that we've been reading about in this book. That's what I found exciting is like, we're actually playing a part through the last supper and baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does really bring it home, doesn't it? Um, I mean, just really, really in a practical way. And then you think about how I think for, for many Christians, uh, people raised in the church, people a part of just broader evangelicalism. And I think even in, in Presbyterian reform churches, um, there can be a low view of the sacraments. So a low view of baptism, a low view of the Lord's Supper, um, a sort of minimizing of, of their significance. And so one of the things I, I appreciated about this chapter is one, just rooting everything in the biblical text. So thinking about um, God's covenants and then uh, these covenant signs that he gives us throughout redemptive history um, that, that seal to us these, these promises that the Lord gives to his people. And, and as you said, Nick, it, it makes it so that uh, this is something that's very personal uh, for, for me as a believer, uh, for us as believers. It's something that God um, gives to us. And, uh, and so, I mean, I, I just think that, that the more we, we look at scripture and have a, a biblical understanding of the covenants and also of these signs that are attached to these covenants, the more uh, we can grow in our assurance and our understanding of, of what God has promised to his people. Uh, so that we might lay hold of it. And uh, definitely, as you say, man, just so practical. Yeah. I mean, so even with these, so what, so what are these, these two sacraments and what, what does it mean to seal us in these two sacraments? And how is that, how is that related kind of broadly with this theme of assurance? Um, Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of start off with that. Yeah, so, I mean, we usually say, right, uh, that there are two sacraments uh, that were instituted by Christ for his church to be used, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, I mean, the key there with regard to, you know, why, why are there two? Well, these are, are these signs that represent essentially the gospel, Christ's work for us, uh, and they seal to us those, those promises of the gospel. So you ask, what does a seal do? It, it certifies the reality of something. So, um, just just thinking about assurance right there, right? Like what what many people wonder about is, does God really love me? Um, is the gospel really true for me? And so if God is giving us these objective promises of his gospel, this visible word of the gospel um, for me as an individual, and he calls me to lay hold of it, it's him saying, yeah, I, I really do. Um, and, and here's how real that love is. I mean, it's just as real as this bread and this wine that's being extended to you for you to take. And this is where a lot of people, I think, man, are, are, are confused. I've heard people say, you know, with regard to assurance, I remember years ago hearing one pastor preaching on assurance and saying, okay, if if you're struggling with assurance, with doubts uh, about your salvation, um, well, here's how you can know that you're truly saved, that you're really one of God's elect. You, you see basically how you live your life. And you can, you can begin to, to, you know, see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And maybe you don't have a lot, right? But you're, you're determining whether or not you belong to the Lord on the basis of how well you're performing. Mm. That's what a lot of people wrestle with. Right? Like it, and, and for a lot of people, especially if you have a sensitive conscience, um, then when you begin to, to look at your life, that's the very thing that cause, causes you to question whether or not you actually belong to the Lord, not because you're involved in uh, maybe these, these heinous sins, but just because you have a sense of God's presence in your life, you're struggling still as a believer. Uh, every day we sin against the Lord in thought, word, and deed. So, so you know, 
often what, what people will do when they're trying to encourage uh, others to have assurances, they'll point them to their performance. Um, and they'll say, look at how much you've yeah. grown, look at how you're doing. And there is, I think we could say on the, on the basis of scripture, right? There, there's a sense in which, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. If, if we belong to the Lord, God is sanctifying us. There are passages that you can go to. Sometimes this was referred to as the, as a sort of practical syllogism where, whereas, you know, we're looking at the, the fruit that God has worked in our lives and we're able to determine from that, that, that the Lord really is, uh, in us and at work in us, that he's, that he's called us to himself. Uh, but even more than that, I think what scripture gives us is these objective promises that we are called to sink our teeth into. And, and what, what those promises do, these promises that we have exhibited to us in the sacraments is they lead us outside of ourselves uh, up to Christ. And so through baptism, through the bread and the wine, our minds are lifted up. They're elevated to Jesus and, and his gospel, his work for us. Um, and it, it, it's that, it's that gospel promise. It's that, um, that, that gift that's extended to us objectively here, um, that we're called to lay hold of and to rest in. And this is, at least for me, I mean, I remember in, in my relationship with the Lord early on as a Christian, uh, really struggling with assurance and kind of, kind of wrestling with some of these questions. And, and that was what more and more gave me, um, I, I just just really digging into the promises of God, the gospel, and then also the, these these sacraments, and seeing them as a means to embrace the love of God for me, um, and to rest in it. And that's been that's been huge for me, and I know it, it, it's huge for a lot of others as well. Yeah, um, maybe if I can dig in a little bit a little bit more into that too. So, kind of both what the what the sacraments are, but what. What are some common ways you think those that have approached you or called in and, and said, Hey, is this what the sacraments do? So what, what are some, what are some ways you think maybe not, not, not the fullest picture of what the sacraments are, what they, what they proclaim to us? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, at least that, that we're interacting with, um, when we talk about the importance of baptism and the Lord's supper, they're, they're just thinking, wait, what, you know, like I, I, um, that that's new for me. Uh, because in, in a lot of churches today, it's like we're getting away from the rituals, even the ones that Jesus instituted for the yeah. church. And we're, yeah. we're getting to the, you know, like the real, the, the heart of it, that the personal faith, personal relationship um, with Jesus. And that we want to have this mystical experience of God's presence. Um, and what's unfortunate about that is like God has actually told us very clearly, here's where you can experience mm. my presence, my grace objectively. It's not like we're playing. Uh, Marco Polo with the Holy Spirit, you know, <laughs> right, trying yeah. to, like trying to figure out where he's moving and we're, yeah. we're chasing him around uh, in these different places. It's, I mean, just think of God's kindness to us in, in uh, condescending to us in this way, saying, hey, if you if you want to see my love for you, if you want to be assured of it, um, if you want to see where my spirit is working in the midst of my people, let me let me let me give you some some tangible things that you can cling to that you can hold on to. And, and by faith, we receive that, that spirit's working in our lives through these, through these sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I think those ideas uh, are really new for a lot of people. Mm. I, think, I think when we view baptism and the Lord's Supper as first and foremost, something that we are, that we are accomplishing before God and before the Christian community, where we're saying, hey, baptism, you know, what it's really about is... Um, 
me letting the world know that I want to follow Jesus or the Lord's Supper, what it's really about primarily is it's, it's this time for me to stop and reflect on the fact that Jesus died for my sins and kind of remember that and try to conjure up uh, an emotional reaction to this, this reality. Well, well, it's work. It's stuff that we're doing, which is not to say, as, as we said earlier, that like, we're not participating in the sacramental life of the church. But, but really, when you look at scripture, and, and again, going back to this idea of these covenant signs that God gives to his people, um, these, are, these are gifts. These are ways that God blesses his people, assures us of his love, of his goodwill towards us. Um, and, and so in that sense, there's something to be received primarily uh, by faith, not so much something that we're, we're accomplishing, that we're, that we're doing. Um, it's something that we're receiving and God is, is the one who's acting. God is the one who's doing, extending his grace to us um, through these signs and seals. Yeah, I love it. So it, <clears throat> the word objective has been uh, used a few times in this chapter with Dr. Thomas, and you used it a couple times, and Peter, I think, had it in one of his questions. So what, what is what we're hearing, um, the correct way is these sacraments are more of a recognition of the objective, uh, you know, the objective reality of the gospel, gospel and how it's prescribed in the Bible versus looking at the sacraments as more of a, more of a response to our subjective mm. kind of feelings of if we think that we might be saved. Yeah, I, I think you're onto something. Uh, I, I remember for me where the shift really came, I mean, because this was not what I was brought up in or, or always thought yeah, I initially, when I started walking with the Lord, you know, like baptism, the Lord's supper, I, I just, I mean, they were things that, that we did that I was supposed to do. Um, and at least at the church that I was at, you know, at that time we, we would have the Lord's supper maybe once a month. And, and it was, it was this sort of ceremony that the, the sense was, or this ritual that we did. Um, and the sense was we, we, we really, um, we really don't want this to get old. And so we have to make sure that we don't do it too frequently. And also um, there's nothing really happening here. There, there's no grace that's, there's nothing really special about this meal. Um, it's just something we're doing because Jesus talked about it and we need to do it. And, uh, and so that was sort of my idea for, for many years as a, as a newer believer. And then, I mean, I mentioned, you know, sort of wrestling with my own uh, assurance questions and a lot of that was rooted in the sort of theology that I, I had embraced, but studying the Bible and in particular, one book that was really formative for me was the book of Hebrews, hmm. uh, which, you know, is, is referenced throughout this chapter and, and studying God's promises hmm. as they're extended to the people of God and, and seeing them as these objective things that we as the community of faith are called to lay hold of, uh, to sink our teeth into. The question is not, um, has God promised? It's, it's, am I laying hold of the promise that's there for me? And in the sacraments, the promises of the gospel of forgiveness of grace are there for us. And we're called to lay hold of them. So one, one text of scripture that was super uh, just uh, important for me, kind of in my own uh, journey, if you will, is in Hebrews chapter six, 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second part of the chapter, the first part of the chapter really troubled me for many years. Oh, yeah. That, that section where, you know, yeah, for everybody out there, apostasy part of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so I would read that and just think, dude, I'm totally not safe. I'm just, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so wrestling through some of these passages in scripture, uh, the warning passages, and then getting to, uh, the, the, the second half of Hebrews chapter six, where the author of the Hebrews says, starting in verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So this is God's promises for his people. Mm-hmm. And then it, the author goes on to say, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, A lot there. But what, what really struck me was this idea of we have these promises from God who cannot lie. He's sworn an oath. This is this is very sort of, you know, this is covenantal language. Um, and it's these promises that we're called to lay hold of. And it's these promises ultimately in Christ that are the anchors of our soul. Um, so what is what is the anchor of my soul, my assurance? It's not, it's not me and what I do. It's what God has done and what he's promised. It's his yeah. grace. And that's what's exhibited to us so clearly in these sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because they're, they're signs and seals of the gospel, of the work of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's God saying to his people, to you in the church, when you're gathered together, this is for you. And practically speaking, again, man, like you're, you're, you're sitting in church, uh, you've had a difficult week, you know, you've, you've struggled with whatever your, your sins are, whatever you, you struggle with. And you show up and you're weighed down by those things and you hear the pastor preaching the gospel and he's talking about the love of God for people, for sinners. He's talking about the free forgiveness of Jesus Christ that washes away all of our sins. And here's what it, this is what's so easy for you to think. It's easy for us to think, yeah, I believe that's true for some people out there. Hmm. It's really hard for me to believe that that's true for me because... Hmm. Uh, I don't know other people. I know my sins. I know how messed up I am. I know how easy it is for me to believe that God doesn't love me um, because of, man, I, I make the same mistakes or sins over and over again. And so, and so we can hear the gospel and we're tempted to believe it's true for others, but it's not true for me. It's not personal for me. Yeah, Jesus loves sinners, but those are just people out there. Well, in the Lord's Supper, when we gather together and we are receiving individually the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, it's God saying Mm. to his people, Hey, this is, this is for you. This gospel that you just heard that you're tempted to believe is not for you because of your sin, right? Like this is for you. And, and that's what we're called 
as I said already, right, to sink our teeth into it, to lay hold of it, to say amen, and to receive the grace of God, the promises of God that are extended to us, sealed to us um, in these visible signs and in through these visible signs. And so in that sense, man, like these are, these are super important, right? Yeah. So. And that's, and that, what, what you're saying too, is reminding me, I think this is kind of towards the middle of the chapter when you talk about the, um, uh, the blood of the covenants and pulling from language of Exodus, especially for the Lord's supper. So the blood that was required, the sacrifice was required. So you get a bloody sacrifice in the old Testament, you get a non-bloody sacrifice in the new Testament. And then same kind of uh, idea with circumcision and baptism. So can you talk with, with how Dr. Thomas describes these two sacraments coming from bloody signs to non-bloody signs? What, what does that show us for our assurance as well? Well, I mean, we, one, we don't need any more blood, right? So like Hebrews chapter 10, there was a once for all sacrifice for sins offered by Jesus. His, I mean, his sacrifice was, um, was quite bloody, um, but he's abolished all of those propitiatory sacrifices, those wrath removing sacrifices of the old covenant, um, doing what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. And so in that sense, and this is another thing that you get, especially in the book of Hebrews, right? Like we, we are, we're free. We can be free in our consciences because um, we know that the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus is sufficient. And when we take the Lord's Supper, that, that, that there's no like re-sacrificing of Jesus going on or anything like that. Um, but the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, which he accomplished in, in, you know, in the past, uh, at that high point of redemptive history um, is is applied to us, if you will. You think of the distinction that's sometimes used um, in in some circles in reform circles about the idea of redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Yeah. Right, Jesus is you, you can't there's there's one sacrifice that's been accomplished for sins for all time. That's a sacrifice of Jesus. Um, but when we gather together by by the grace of God and, and through faith, we, we receive the benefits of that great reality, the application of that redemption for us. And, and there's a lot of language in, in the institution of the Lord's Supper in particular that, that makes that clear, that's, uh, that, that indicates that. I like that you brought up, and this, this will give people like, I mean, you, you think of, you know, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper uh, in places like uh, Matthew, Matthew 26, right, uh, in Luke. Um, in Mark, and you have this this language, this this language of the blood of the covenant, which is probably echoing um, the the ratification ceremony of the the old covenant in Exodus chapter twenty four, yeah. um, where the blood was sprinkled on uh, the people, really the the people there being being the twelve tribes uh, mm -hmm. of Israel, um, who were gathered together, entering into covenant with God, and here. In the Gospels, you have the, the echoes of that language. This this is the, the blood of the covenant. This cup is the blood of the covenant uh, with the twelve disciples, um, right? Mm -hmm. the, the 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 twelve apostles of our Lord Jesus. But you also have so many other places uh, in the Old Testament um, that the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper is pulling from. You have uh, the showbread, for example, described mm -hmm. in Exodus and in Leviticus, or the bread of the presence. These these twelve loaves. Mm -hmm. um, where you have, the, you know, where actually on the uh, on the table there in the sanctuary, you had bread, but you also had wine because there was there was wine that was offered with them. You had this incense that was burning there uh, with the loaves, which was which was for the memorial before God. 
Um, and you have that language in the institution of the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Um, you have the, the, the promise of the new covenant, right? Jeremiah 31, Jesus yep. identifying this as the new covenant. So you have all of these um, streams that are sort of flowing into uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper as this, this new covenant ratification for the forgiveness of our sins um, for the people of God. It's, it's wild. It's cool. Yeah. I love that part of the chapter too. Peter kind of took my question. I was really excited. <laughs> I looked over my screen. I saw your notes. I, uh, it was the, the fact that a lot of light bulbs just go off when you think of bloodshed with circumcision in the old Testament points towards baptism, new Testament water. And then you got bloodshed on the doors of the Passover in the old Testament point towards the bread and wine in the last supper in the new Testament. So I love how those kind of just connect. There's a bloodshed needed to happen in the old Testament. Jesus shed his blood. So blood doesn't need to be shed anymore. He shed his blood on our behalf. And now we can partake in the new covenant and we can be, part of his kingdom and even Jesus saying that it points it has an eschatological tone towards it as well you know the resurrection <laughs> in, through the baptism water and then also Jesus will partake in a in a, the the wedding banquet supper when he comes again so that wine that he, he, the bread and wine was going to happen again when, when he comes back and we see him face to face. So when we're thinking of the last supper, we, we're excited to see him face to face again. There's a already in a not yet element in the, in the last supper. I mean, this chapter with Dr. Thomas is so great. Peeling back a lot of layers, explaining the, the, the meanings, uh, what to think about while you're doing these sacraments and so unless you have some other feedback i was kind of just thinking also starting kind of just with the baptism of infants no oh, you there. took my question now that's my next question nice. Nice. My good. Notes. good i know i know uh, peter likes to give a lot of baptists <laughs> a hard time so but we, we won't we don't need to go in the whole like baby baptism versus adult baptism debate, but we just need to focus on like with this chapter, what it's saying. If you, if you were baptized as a baby, how can you look back on your baptism? How can you observe other baby baptisms in your church? And as a parent, what's your responsibility and how is that a reassuring as a parent? I know uh, pastor Sanchez, you and I both have kids. And so our prayer is obviously we want our, kids to be saved so how does that give us assurance too mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think i think a lot of it goes back to just this idea of promise and the promises that god makes to his people the promise to be a god to us and to our children uh, that you see repeated throughout the old testament and the new testament um and and that's that's a promise that's also associated with the new covenant you think of uh deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 uh, where God says, I'm going to circumcise uh, your heart and, and the heart of your children, right? Like your, your offspring. 
Uh, so it's it's very this this covenantal language is very familial, which I think should be a comfort to believers that God has this goodwill, this intention towards His people, that He includes our children uh, in the worshiping community. And I know that that's I, I guess you know that's what's what's debated. Um, but but I think as I as I read the scriptures, I mean it's certainly something that was true under the old covenant, which is yeah. why you had the the command given uh, to Abraham to circumcise his infant children. Um, which was actually uh, in in the ancient Near East, circumcision was was practiced um, by many people, not just the Israelites. I don't believe it was practiced by the Philistines, but there were a lot of people that practiced circumcision, usually as as this sort of entrance into manhood ritual. Mm. What was unique about Genesis 17 was you have Abraham being commanded to give this sign, this sacrament, if you will, to the infants um, on the eighth day. Eighth day, sort of this this picture of new creation, the number eight in scripture. Um, it's also a sign of death, judgment, right? You have blood, cutting. Uh, Genesis 17, if you go back just a, a, a couple chapters to Genesis 15, where God entered into this bloody covenant with Abraham, where he puts Abraham to sleep and, you know, these animals have been cut in half and God passes through the animals as cutting as a sign of death. Mm -hmm. um, so you have judgment there, but you also have new life, uh, regeneration, the circumcision of the heart. And, and so th this picture, real picture of judgment and salvation um, which ultimately is also what what baptism pictures, right? When you look at the New Testament, um, what are what are the types of baptism that are described in in the New Testament, drawing from the Old Testament? Well, you have things like like the flood um, in the book of Genesis. You have um, the people of Israel crossing through the waters out of Egypt, which was you know, salvation and judgment, judgment, certainly for the unbelieving Egyptians, salvation for the Israelites. Um, so th these signs, which are pictures of salvation, pictures of judgment, which with, with circumcision, you know, God called to be applied to, to the infants, to children. And then also with, with baptism, you know, it seems to me like there's every indication in the New Testament that the children of believers are, are still to be treated as a part of the worshiping community you think of paul you know writing to the corinthians in first corinthians 7 and saying look if if one of you uh in a, in a relationship married couple you know if one of you is a believer your, your children are set apart wholly otherwise they would yeah. be unclean well that's the language of covenant community yeah. that's the language of the worshiping community um the 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 holy are the community like you know the people of god the, the part of the worshiping community um the unholy the the profane are those who are not a part of that that community the gentiles the outsiders that kind of a thing so for paul to use that kind of language under the new covenant um in relation to our children right like that should speak to us hmm. and um and so I don't know if you were asking me to make a defense of infant baptism, but I try to, I try to any opportunity I get, you know, you, you have to. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just part of being reformed. You got to make jokes every once in a while. Yeah. 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 No, but, but it is. And, and even going back to something we were talking about earlier. Um, I mean, when you just think about it, if these signs, these, these, you know, uh, gospel uh, tokens, if you will, are primarily about God's work towards his people and not, primarily about what we're doing, then it makes, it makes more sense. I mean, initially for, for me, and I think this is a lot of people, you just hear over and over again, baptism is an outward sign of my inward faith. 
And that's what baptism is. And so if that's what baptism is, why would a child ever be baptized? Why would an infant ever be baptized? But if it's more than that, and if it isn't primarily that, then there's an open door for <laughs> baptizing your kids uh, <laughs> no. because, because it's, it's the Lord's work. I remember one time a guy teasing me, a friend of mine, you know, just that, that fun banter. And we were having a, a baptism at our church and infant baptism. And he was just kind of saying like, Dude, there's, there's no, it, that's just like a, a dedication with water. You know, there's nothing. It's, it's you dedicating this child to God um, with, with, water and that's that's what we do just without water that kind of a thing and i said well no and actually uh, derek thomas gets into this a little bit yeah, when he's talking he does, about yep. the Lord's sacrament mm-hmm. uh, it, i said no it's not it's not just us dedicating this child to god because god is the one who's speaking working in these yeah. things what's different about it is it's god dedicating himself pledging himself to his people. Mm-hmm. It's his promises to us that we're called to lay hold of. And so he's the one who's made the promise, who's, yeah. who's extending the grace, who's, who's doing these things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think when you see it in that way, um, I think it's more biblical, but I think it's also much more beautiful as well. Yeah. Like a reverse baby. Yeah. Dedication. We're, we're kind of like Baptists. We're just doing reverse. Yeah. No. Yeah, and with that said, <laughs> it was, uh, <clears throat> Us knowing how to exercise uh, sacraments, uh, the knowledge of what to do is a unilateral aspect of from God through the administrations of the covenant of grace, right? So there's that unilateral uh, initiation of understanding that comes from God of what we what we should do, and then uh, or what He's doing for us, and then there's the bilateral aspect of us sort of, uh, I guess, just responding in the mm-hmm. act of doing the sacrament. Stole my so next question yet again. Nice. Yes. <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are like two peas in a pod, That's, man. You guys we, just, could, we, could, we could finish each other's sentences. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy one. Yeah, I mean, that's something that Derek Thomas brings out in this yeah. chapter, right? Like he talks about the, the covenant of grace being this unilateral covenant, this, this promises of salvation that God is executing, but this, this sense in which we're called to respond to it. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought, the, I thought that the language there was interesting. I, I mean, I think that the response ultimately for us, yeah. you know, the condition for us is faith. And that's not like a, a meritorious condition. It's not yeah. like, hey, God has made these, these covenant promises. And when I say meritorious, I mean, it's, it's not like this condition whereby we're earning um, the gospel that is given to us uh, objectively in these signs and seals. Yeah. It's faith is, and this is how, how I think, you know, Protestants generally historically have understood it is it's, it's this hand, it's this empty hand that's laying hold of the grace of Jesus for us. I love, I mean, my favorite uh, picture in the gospels of faith is remember you have that, that woman in the gospel of Mark, um, who has this issue of blood for several years Yeah, and she's unclean, right? Like she, she's tried all these things to be healed and she just, nothing has worked. And so you imagine just the, the pain, the frustration, uh, being ostracized by society. She's, she's been ceremonially unclean for years and years and everything she's tried is, has just sort of fallen through and Jesus shows up into town and she thinks, if I can just lay hold of his garments, I'll be healed. And she sneaks up on him while he's in the crowd 
and she reaches her unclean hand out and she grabs a hold of his robe and immediately she's healed. And Jesus, you know, knowing that power had left and that, that this woman had been healed, he says, who touched me? And, and the disciples are like, what are you talking about, man? We're in this crowd and everybody's bumping into you. And, and a lot of people did touch him there in the crowd, you know, just sort of bumping into each other. Um, but only one woman laid hold of him by faith there in that moment. And that's what faith is. It's that unclean hand, that empty, unclean hand, laying hold of the righteous robes of Jesus, his grace for us. And so that's the condition. That's, that's the bilateral part. It's us receiving uh, the grace that's, that's offered to us by the Lord for his people, for us. Um, and, and we bring the uncleanness, you know, that's what we bring to the table, that, yep. that unclean hand. Um, and it's by faith that we receive his grace. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, that that's, I think that's kind of a lead up to, to my last question. If Nick has anything after this, so we've, we might've heard, people might've heard if they've gone to reform churches or heard from other pastors, if you have any indwelling sin in you, then deal with that first and then, then take the Lord's supper. So, so pray, so pray about that stuff kind of settle your accounts and then take the Lord's Supper. But when, when we're thinking of the first Corinthians 11 language that Dr. Thomas brings out with unworthy takings, how, how are we to understand an unworthy taking of the, the Lord's? So like effectively who, who takes the Lord's Supper? Like what, like, what does it, what does it do for us? How, what disbars us from the Lord's Supper? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's required of those who would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves, right? That's the language of, of 1 Corinthians, examine themselves of their faith, faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience. Uh, this is the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Lest coming unworthily, they should eat and drink judgment to themselves. So one, faith, um, ability to discern the Lord's body. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, which can be taken two ways, right? Like understanding what's actually taking place in this sacrament uh, but in the context there in First Corinthians, one of the issues was like they weren't getting along within the body of Christ and they were neglecting the poor members at the table. And so part of discerning the Lord's body rightly is, is understanding the body of Christ and caring for one another. And, and what, what it doesn't mean is we come before the Lord uh, at, at his table without sin, because each of us, right, like it daily uh, in our thoughts, in our words and in, in our deeds, we sin. We can't escape it. I mean, I'm, I've made the case for for uh, infant baptism a little bit earlier, but that doesn't mean that I don't uh, got mad love for a lot of Baptists out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you, you think of um, uh, a guy like Charles Spurgeon, he has this great line where yeah. he says he has to pray to God to forgive his prayers <laughs> because like <laughs> even in our even yeah. in our best offerings to the Lord, um, right? Like it's they're weak, uh, they're they're imperfect and we, we can't offer to God anything that's spotless. The only, the only spotless offering was the one that Jesus made for us. And so it's not that we're sinless. Um, I think it's that we come to the table recognizing our condition and longing for the grace that's given to us there, as opposed to um, denying our sin, clinging to it in unrepentance, even though we know that it's there. Um, and, and cutting ourselves off essentially, uh, from, from Christ, from his word, from his people, 
through living in open and unrepentant sin. And of course, that's something that the Apostle Paul had to address uh, in the book of First Corinthians as well. And so, um, right, like we, we refer to these these sacraments uh, sometimes as means of grace. Um, they're, they're tokens of God's love, of his goodwill toward us. And that's not a love that he gave to us because we were perfect or because we were righteous. Um, and so we come to the table confessing that one is holy and that's Jesus. And we're coming in and through him to receive the grace that we need by faith. Um, and so hopefully that encourages people because we can sort of fall into the trap of thinking, I'm just, I, I just am not worthy. Um, well, yes, we're not, but your sin, our sin is not greater than the blood of Christ and his forgiveness, which is extended to us in the gospel. Um, and that's what faith does. It apprehends that, that reality. It lays hold of that truth um, that Jesus, for, for all of my failures, for all of my sins, uh, Jesus is greater. His, yeah. his blood is greater. And that's what I cling to. Yep. So to somewhat put it simply, if to know if you should not take communion would be if you wholeheartedly reject the gospel, like mm. you just, is that right? Like, it's not really even the size of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Um, knowing yeah. that. So even if we're like, look, I believe I, I know I'm, I know I, uh, I'm not worthy to commune with Jesus. And even if you have a tiny amount of faith in Jesus, that, that, that's that table for communion is meant for us sinners. Like that's meant for us. Mm -hmm. But, but if you completely reject Jesus and reject the Bible, then you're in a place of not, she should not be taking communion. Right. Yeah. Or if you haven't been baptized, I mean, usually when, what I said at the congregation, yeah. I mean that, that yeah. too, right. Like if you haven't been baptized, like um, that needs to happen first. Yep. And uh, yeah, there, there's an order to these things. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say, man, like get the, get the church in the mix, right? Like don't excommunicate yourself because you have a sensitive conscience. So right. if you're like, man, I struggle with sin and, and I, I think I repented, but I'm not really sure. And I, I just day by day, I'm like having this battle. I'm just not worthy to take the Lord's supper. Like you're cutting yourself off from a means of grace. Um, when I, in that situation, I say you shouldn't, I think like the person who, who shouldn't take the Lord's supper is the individual who has been. Uh, excommunicated by the church. So they're, they're under discipline. They've gone through this process, essentially, is what the Apostle Paul talks about in First Corinthians with, with uh, the individual who's in this immoral relationship with, with his mother-in-law, right? Like Paul says, you guys need to deal with this. Um, you need to address this issue. Um, and, and so, so I would say, um, don't, don't like just on your own, try to determine this for yourself. Mm. It's something that should happen in the context of, of the church under the, the faithful care of your pastor, elders, conversations that you're having. And if you are living in open, unrepentant sin, then hopefully you go to a church where they care about your soul enough to talk mm. to you about those things and, and to address those issues. Um, and maybe that means like, yeah, I'm not going to repent of, you know, selling drugs and stealing things and whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you come under church discipline and you're, you're barred from the Lord's table. Yeah. Um, not as, as a, a form of punishment, but as a form of calling you to repentance, to realize um, how serious this is. Well, well, that's that's right. That's that's one thing. Um, but my concern is for I think for, for the average person, believer yeah. who's, who's really struggling with this and they're like, I don't know. 
that they're just like kind of on their own saying, I, I, I did better last week at walking with Jesus. So I was worthy to take communion this week. I've, I've really struggled. So I'm not worthy. And we're sort of like excommunicating ourselves every couple of months because of, uh, because of the struggle or whatever, as opposed to um, falling at the foot of Christ hmm. here, uh, receiving his grace, confessing our sins, right? Right. With, with all, uh, with all sincerity saying, God help me. Um, I need your help. I need your grace. And, and knowing that we, we receive it there, that he gives it to us by faith. Um, but just not, not doing these things in isolation. So hmm. that kind of goes back to the bilateral aspect. Our obligation is to respond in faith and repentance. And so that, that also, what kind of helps assuage me with this is knowing the definition and reality of justification, mm. you know, and knowing once and for all, I have been saved and I might have a, a bad day or week here or there, but I know my standing with Christ and, you know, where I am in sanctification, I'm only going to help nourish my sanctification through the communion with the saints and with Jesus through, through the last supper, through the, the communion. Yeah. And so that's how I've been. And then, so we talked about the baptism aspect and how that in the old Testament was in circumcision and you're recognized as a Israelite. And now uh, in the new covenant, you're part of the church, you know, and so you're, you're born into the church community. You're part of the covenant. And so when you're able to profess your faith and there's um, confidence from you as a pastor, when you see confidence that a child, a young, could be even like a seven, eight year old, or there's, a, there's not a timestamp on the age, but they come to faith by saying, Hey, I, I trust Jesus. Um, and you know that they can take communion. That is an aspect of knowing uh, you have confidence that they're born again, that there's justification there. And in your shoes as a pastor, that's where you're like, I know that they can take communion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, one of the things that, that and I, let me just say again, like, I, I really appreciated uh, this chapter, I felt like it was, it was, yeah. I mean, there was some it was robust, but you, you had a lot of this practical discussion as well. Mm -hmm. Thinking through the sacraments, it was really, really helpful. Um, and he, he talked about, you know, he, he talked about infant communion at one point, and he mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, like the Passover meal and how in the context of the Passover meal, you know, a child would, would ask the question, why are we, why are we doing these things? Yeah. And, and God tells us, people, you know, when they ask you, why are, why are we doing these things? You tell them, well, we were we were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered us. And you're helping them to understand. So they're, they're seeing these these rituals that we do as the people of God, and they begin to ask questions. And as they begin to ask questions, then it opens up the door for conversations about the redemptive work of God. And there's an understanding that's built out of that. And then there's participation that comes from that understanding and faith. Um, and so the way we the way we do it is like as 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 those questions are being asked in the life of the body of Christ, um, 
uh, by our children, you know, as we're worshiping together every week, as they're seeing the Lord's Supper and they're wondering why some, you know, people are taking the Lord's Supper, why others aren't asking questions about what we're doing, why, why they can't commune. It's an open door for parents, um, for the church to, to teach, to say, we were slaves in Egypt and God brought us out. And it's as those conversations begin happening and they're able to um, share about the significance of the supper, of the special communion we have with Jesus in the supper, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, of his blood, of his body, of the bread and the wine, the significance of the bread and the wine, that you, you have this, this discipleship that is taking place in the home. And for us, you know, as, as parents begin to see that and the fruit of that and their children are making, you know, expressions, confessions of, of faith, affirmation, affirming, affirming that they believe in God. Um, then we sit down with, with those kids um, and have conversations with them, asking, asking them about their faith, about, you know, and I appreciate, you know, Nick, that you said there's, there's no like um, age of accountability type of a thing that's given to us in the scriptures where it says, Hey, uh, you know, they, you better make sure that they're at least 12 or that kind of a thing. What we see actually in the Bible is that the spirit of God can work in very young children, like uh, John the Baptist in utero, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, so we trust in the promises of God and in the, the sovereign spirits working in our lives and in our children. Um, and then we, we entrust everything else to him. And as kids ask questions and they're able to articulate the faith and they, they come to faith believing in Jesus and they can make that confession, then we welcome them to the table um, to participate in uh, this aspect of the church's life. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I have quite possibly the most important comment of all time to, to end us out. Well, that's next. So if you're, if you're setting yourself up. It has to be good yep. now. Oh, says hi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, this is a <laughs> member of my church, man. Tell him I said he's a good guy. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Can you tell him I said hello? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me let me text him right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're here right now. He says hi. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if Peter has anything else, but I do want to end it. Um, this is such a good conversation. And I I've, I don't even want to rush off this. I know we have time caps and all that but it's just like the last chapter of this amazing book so um technically second to last chapter yeah that's true it's the actual last chapter but there's actually like third a, to last because there's a bibliography and everything else <laughs> okay very technical there <laughs> yeah. so the the last little section of this chapter um the supper in as remembrance he talks about um that you know the phrase in remembrance of me that jesus says so there's two kind of popular ways of thinking of mentally thinking about how the supper we're interacting with this communion in relation to christ so there's the one that's thinking that it's a strict uh realist that actually it really actually is jesus's body and blood um, or it's more the uh, memorialist, which is kind of like a funeral kind of thing where you're just like thinking, oh, this is a picture, like a photograph of Christ. How should we correctly think of communion 
when it comes to the Holy Spirit and Christ, his, his body? Mm. Small question. There's, there's a couple things there. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is not the question you ask when you're getting ready to end the episode. But, <laughs> but I know. Um, but it's an important right. question. Yeah, so welcome, yeah. welcome to Nick. This is yeah. like, uh, you know, hey, the uh, could you describe like the Bible the right before point. we end the show? Yeah, yeah. So check this. I mean, uh, so yeah, so towards the end, he talks about uh, the, the language in the institution of the Lord's Supper, especially related to remembrance, which we find in Luke's gospel and also in First Corinthians. Do this in remembrance of me. And the way in which that's generally understood by people is the Lord's Supper is about me recollecting the passion of Jesus Christ, remembering his suffering. And as I said earlier, you know, you're like trying to stir up this, this emotional response, this feeling um, you're thinking of the suffering, the, the pain. And, and there, there's an element um, to that in the Lord's Supper. He doesn't get into this so much uh, in his section on remembrance, but, but one of the things that I think, um, I, I believe, is actually when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, when we talked about all the, all the Old Testament yeah. um, passages that he's drawing from in the institution of the Lord's Supper, you have a lot of this sort of technical terminology, even the language of do this. There mm -hmm. are some scholars who have noted like that, that phrase alone is sort of technical, especially in contexts where you have, um, uh, uh, cultic language, the language of ceremony. You see this throughout the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, that the priests doing some do this. Um, but the language of remembrance also in these contexts usually has God as the subject. That is, God is the one remembering. So you think, for example, of uh, Genesis chapter 9. There's, there's a covenant sign there, uh, the rainbow. And God is looking at this sign. He says, when I see the, the rainbow, the battle bow uh, in the sky, I will see it. And I will remember my promise not to flood the earth again. You see this also with the grain offerings in the book of Leviticus, this language of remembrance. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, the, the, the showbread and the incense there, which was a memorial, right? It was a memorial before the Lord. It was bringing God's people before him so that he would remember his promises, his covenant promises toward them. And so when Jesus uses this language in this context, there's a really good case I think that can be made and that has been made um, by liturgical scholars and, and guys who study sacraments and, and, uh, and in particular the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that God is first and foremost, the one who is doing the, rem the remembering, yeah. um, that we are coming before the Lord, offering ourselves, right, this sacrifice of thanksgiving um, here in the bread and the wine, and that God sees the covenant promise, or God sees the covenant signs, and he, uh, he affects, if you will, his promise, his goodwill towards his people, the, the, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of uh, his grace, his spirit, so on and so forth. And so, so in that sense, right, it's not um, just uh, something that I'm doing, remembering, trying to recollect these things. It's the church together, objectively offering to the Lord the sacrifice of thanksgiving in the sacrament that Jesus Christ instituted and receiving his grace, his, his goodness, his, um, his mercy by faith. I actually wrote an article about this several years ago 
over at corechristianity.com called How We've Misunderstood, Do This in Remembrance of Me. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so, so I mean, this gets to you, you're, you're talking, you know, like, how can we understand what's taking place? But we really believe that we're receiving Christ, his benefits for us through this, through this sacrament, through the bread and through the wine by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's, that's the, we would say maybe the mode of our reception of these gifts It's sort of, you know, technical language there. So I don't want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want people to be like, but, but the mode being right. Jesus is in heaven. He's ascended into heaven. So how can we feed on his body and blood? Um, well, it's not by him coming down to earth again. It's not by some mystical magical transformation in the bread and the wine the bread and the wine are bread and wine but they become the sacrament of his body and blood um, it's by the spirit uniting us to jesus and somehow feeding us with his work with his life with his body with his yeah. blood with his benefits by faith and so and that that that's the way we understand it key there is the work of the spirit. And isn't that what Jesus himself seemed to suggest? You know, you think of the upper room discourse, which is the context in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, described in the gospel of John, John chapters 13 and following up to the high priestly prayer in John 17. And the whole context of that teaching discourse that he gives, um, you, you know, he's talking about why he, the fact that he's going to leave his disciples soon, but he's saying, but you know what? The spirit is coming and, and I'm going to be with you through the spirit. And the spirit is going to fill you. So, so however we receive Christ in the supper, and we believe that we do receive him with his benefits in the supper, key to that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Well, with that uh, land, uh, with that plane landing question, we'll, uh, we'll finish this out. So yeah, I wanted to thank you for coming on, talking about this, both kind of at a, both at a scholarly level, but I think also, I mean, just as important, if not more important for kind of a lot of people, just a pastoral level how do they, how do they think about these, these sacraments as covenantal signs of assurance? So thanks for coming on using your, your background, some practical aspects. It's been a blast having you on. Yeah. Man, yeah. It's been great. And, uh, love this resource. Thank you guys for helping get a hold of it. Crossway. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Just awesome. So great chapter. Wonderful to be able to talk about this stuff and God bless you guys and the work you're doing. Thank you. You too. Let's have you back on again sometime. Yeah, we're uh, yeah. we're planning season four and, and beyond. So yeah, we'll uh, we'd love to have you on in the future again. This would be great. Sweet man, thanks guys. Thank you. Are you looking for Reformed Church in the Orange County, Santa Ana area? We'll be starting our study through the Book of Judges, as well as diving into Reverend Danny Hyde's Welcome to Reformed Church, beginning weekly on December second, which is a Thursday at six thirty p.m. at Fourth Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. If you'd like updates and information on joining our core group, email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or head to either GuiltGracePod or SantaAnnaURC on Twitter or find the link in the show notes to learn more. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is 
enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.